I'm Taylor. I'm Cass. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. A, a new episode, guys. Yay! Because Kat is back with us in the land of the living and the uh, un unhospitalized. I'm back! Alive and well and back to being a semi-functioning adult. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for all the messages I was in hospital with. A really shitty, horrible infection. I'm uh -oh. fine now. If you want to hear the whole story, sign up to Patreon because I talked about it in this month's ram Rumble. So yes, you know. we talked about all of our various medical <laughs> misadventures in the month of May. Gosh, that's some yeah. good alliteration right there. Uh, normal service hopefully has been resumed. Yeah, well, yeah, we're we're playing a bit of catch up this month, but we're 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 gonna get there. We we'll get there. Uh, you might remember that at the end of the lottery hackers episode three weeks ago. I think now, uh, that we said May was going to be cults month here at Square Mile of Murder, but things have changed, obviously, and now June will be the month of cults. Yeah. Uh, so to fill the gap, we've got something a little bit different for you uh, this week, but stick with us, because this week we're going to talk about the film Wind River and the real life story behind it. Look, we both have film degrees, it's how we fucking met, it's impressive it's taken us this long to go into crime thriller rather than true crime. So let's stick with it. Okay. Cause it's good. Is it bad that sometimes I forget that I have a film degree? I am offended. I it's just that like I also don't think of it as a film degree because that's not really what I focused on. Like what was I was film there. And TV? I was there for the film classes, but I was there for the TV. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> I was there for the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know, it's just, I, I just kind of like, oh yeah, I have, I have a degree from this Scottish university, and I know that, like, TV was involved, but I always kind of forget about the film parts, even though I sat through all those fucking lectures. <laughs> what, what was the one in the spring? Don't even go there because I know what you're thinking of and I can't relive that. It was horrible and no offense to the PhD student who gave those lectures, but nobody knew what the hell she tried. Nobody knew what the hell she was talking about. It was way over our heads. I felt like I was like twelve years old attending an astrophysics lecture. Like I had I literally have a binder three inches thick, which is full of all the reading. And resources yeah. we had for that module because I could not read it on a screen. I had to print it out and highlight it and draw on it because it did not make sense to me. Oh, I I got to a certain point, like I think two weeks into the module, and I was just like, I can't do the reading. I'm not going to do the reading because I don't understand the reading. So maybe I'll understand the lectures, but like this will take me 17 hours to read this like five page article and i just can't i can't do yeah. it anyway nothing to do with what we're talking about today. no not at all anyhow some some residual uh nightmares from that, <laughs> from that stuff did you really go to university if you don't have residual nightmares uh so Back yeah to wind river yeah. So, uh, Wind River, for those who haven't seen the film or those who would like a recap, um, and fair warning, 
there are spoilers here. So if you would like to watch the film before listening to this and you haven't, like, do, go do that. Um, I think it's definitely worth a watch. I think it's amazing. I think it's, it's harrowing. It's yeah, very, it's graphic. I'm not going to lie. It's painful. It's heartbreaking. But yeah. it is amazing. And I want to feel, that's what I want to feel when I go to the cinema. I don't yeah. want to walk out and go, man, I want to walk out and think, oh my God, what how just happened? Yeah, you want it to be like an experience. I will also yeah. say the cinematography is absolutely incredible. incredible. Like I, it, it really benefits from like sitting down, watching it on as big of a screen you can and just taking in yeah. the detail because it's like amazing. So go watch it. We'll wait. Be right here. Hit your little pause button. Yeah, hit the we'll pause be right button. right here. Yeah. Okay. Did you do it? You're back? Great. Let's go. Spoilers ahead. So, Wind River is a neo-Western, which tells the story of Jerry... <laughs> Jerry? <laughs> Fucking hell. <laughs> <Which> Jeremy tells... <laughs> Renner. No, he's Jerry now. <laughs> which tells the story of Jeremy Renner's character, Corey Lambert, who is a white federal agent with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service on the Wind River Indian Reservation in the middle of a brutal and rural Wyoming winter. Uh, Three years before the film's opening, Lambert's 16-year-old daughter, Emily, was murdered after a house party, and nobody was ever charged with her death. Following Emily's death, Lambert's marriage to his wife, Wilma, who's played by Julia Jones, collapses. They eventually split up and share custody of their uh, son, Casey, who is seven at the time of the film, or eight, seven or eight? Yeah. So Wilma is uh, an indigenous indigenous woman or Native American. Terminology is shifting we we've tried we have a whole section we have a whole section about this so we'll get to that but yeah um so she is native american and the film touches on the stigma and prejudice from both sides about um a native or you know indigenous women marrying a white man and of course the stigma and bullying their children faced for being mixed race uh, we should note that the real-life Wind River Indian Reservation is shared by two different tribes, the Eastern Shoshone tribe and the Northern Arapaho tribe. But the film, at least as far as I remember it, does not explicitly say which tribe the indigenous characters belong to. Um, um, there is a moment where he's like, Renner's characters with his son and he's teaching him about horses and the kid's like, oh, that's really like some cowboy stuff. And the he, Jeremy Renner, Renner's character goes, no, that's all Arapaho. So I think oh. that might be. But they're not really explicit about it. So, so yeah, I mean, because I did look like all the, re- like everything I could find about the film and I couldn't find if it specifically referenced. Yeah, I think, I think that's the only reference that I picked up on. So it's definitely not um, overt. Yeah. Uh, the beginning of the film shows Lambert discovering the body of 18-year-old Natalie Hansen. She's an indigenous woman who also happened to be his daughter Emily's best friend. Natalie had been running barefoot through the snow the night before, wearing only her pyjamas and a coat. 
not enough for this like really harsh sub-zero Wyoming winter. And she was barefoot. Yeah. Uh, she was miles from any building or any kind of shelter. She's just out on the plains between the mountains. Uh, she sort of covered in her face and her groin are covered in blood, suggesting that she was sexually assaulted before her death. Uh, so because of the issues surrounding jurisdiction on reservations, the case is handed over to the tribal police and the FBI. And soon young FBI agent Jane Banner arrives on the scene. Now Jane is played by Elizabeth Olson. You know, the younger sister of Mary-Kate and Ashley Olson. Whom and she looks so young. She looks so young. I don't know how old she actually is now or when the film was. I think she's about our age. I think she's late, sort of late 20s, early 30s. Yeah, which is wild to me because the Olsen twins are forever like 10 in my mind. <laughs> yes. So played by Elizabeth Olsen. Um, Jane is not from the area or even from Wyoming. She was at a course, uh, like a training course in Vegas, right? Yeah. She's um, in Vegas. Yeah. Which is, is a long is way. That's a long way. Like, I feel like the FBI needs to start a, a field office a little bit closer to the northwest up there. Just, just somewhere in the Rockies. Somewhere. Like, shit. But yeah, so she comes in from Vegas because she's the nearest agent to Wind River, um, and she's assigned the case. Uh, she turns up woefully unprepared in just like a shirt and trousers and an FBI windbreaker. Not great. Great for Vegas. She's, not great she's for also Wyoming. From uh, Fort Lauderdale, Lauderdale, Florida. So yeah, yeah. Um, so she recruits Corey. Uh, to help her navigate and track the area and uh, to help her find some appropriate clothes and shoes so that she doesn't freeze to death in the mountains while investigating this crime. Uh, meanwhile, a postmortem is being carried out on Natalie, which showed that she had suffered blunt force trauma and sexual assault, but ultimately she died from a very specific type of exposure. So Natalie had suffered a pulmonary hemorrhage, which is explained in the film as because she had run miles, literally run for her life in sub-zero temperatures. She'd inhaled that much freezing air that the little uh, fluid sacs in her lungs had become frozen, which causes the lungs to freeze. They The lungs collapse and then you literally drown in your own blood and that's what happened. She just collapsed in the snow, no medical help, and then died very quickly a combination of drowning her lungs drowning in her own blood and exposure yeah. uh, after visiting natalie's parents Corey lambert discovers that natalie had a new boyfriend but the parents don't know who he was they had a bit of a they're 18 they can do what they want kind of attitude to their children trusting that she would tell them if there was anything to tell them just fair enough yeah uh, after later speaking to her brother chip played by martin sensmeyer uh, they learned that Natalie's new boyfriend is a quote-unquote cracker called Matt. And of course there are plenty of white people who live within Indian or Native American reservations, Corey Lambert being one of them. Uh, but it doesn't take long for Corey, Jane and the local tribal police, who is led by Police Chief Ben Shoyo, played by Graham Green, to figure out who assaulted Natalie. 
leading to her death. Uh, that's because Corey Lambert is an expert tracker, which is good when you work for the Fish and Wildlife. Yeah, literally his like, job. Yeah. Quite a few sarcastic comments throughout the film about yes, it. Yes, yeah. So he tracks Natalie's movements up into the mountains where he finds the partially buried body of a white man who's later identified as being Matt Rayburn. Um, so her boyfriend. And mm -hmm. Rayburn is played by John Bernthal, a.k.a. Frank Castle, a.k.a. The Punisher from Netflix, Daredevil and Punisher series. This means nothing to me. I, I know, but I, I think that's like his most recognized role. And also they seem to have like half the MCU in the film at this yeah, point. Yeah, so. that's true. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Uh, so a flashback shows us that Matt Rayburn was Natalie's new boyfriend and a worker at a nearby oil field and graphically shows his colleagues finding him and Natalie together um, in bed. And then those colleagues uh, going on to sexually assault her and violently attack Matt when he tries to protect her. Um, and so them basically beating him up allows her to escape and run for her life. And then they end up beating him to death. Meanwhile, Jane, Ben, and other tribal officers arrive at the oil field. Following a radio message from Corey, they realize that it was the workers who sexually assaulted Natalie and murdered Matt. A shootout and a whole heap of shit ensues, leading to the murders of numerous tribal officers and two of the three men who assaulted Natalie and Matt. As well as Jane Banner suffering a very serious gunshot wound to the chest, like... Yeah. I've got plenty of padding in the chest area, but man, that would hurt. I mean, oh. like, you take you take a bullet to a bulletproof vest, even just like a, you know, a small round, and it's mm. like internal bruising and broken ribs and like crush injuries... She took a fucking shotgun blast to the vest. Like, yeah. un unbelievable amount of force. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but in the chaos, one of the murderers who... Um, it's actually the one who sexually assaulted Natalie, manages to escape, and whilst everyone is taken to hospital, Quarry tracks him down and doles out some good old-fashioned Western-style justice. That is the one part we won't spoil for you, because now you have to see how this... Yeah. This turns out. Uh, the film also touches touches upon other issues in indigenous communities, such as lack of opportunities, organised crime, and substance abuse and addiction. Now, you might be thinking around about now. Okay, Cap Taylor, cool story. Hot actor, actors, actresses, great cinematography. So, okay, going to check it out, whatever streaming service it's on, illegally download it, whatever. What does this have to do with a true crime podcast? Well, we're glad you asked. <laughs> So the thing is, Wind River isn't based on, like, a true story, per se. Like, not one specific true story. It is, however, based on, like, thousands of stories. Like, literally thousands. Literally thousands of stories. So, <laughs> um, it, is, it is an amalgamation, if you will. Uh, mm. Although... Actually, that's another issue. So at the end of Wind River, a title card follows the final shot of Corey Lambert and Natalie's father, 
Martin Hansen, played by Gil Birmingham, as they grieve the loss of their daughters together. And this title card says that in the U.S., missing persons statistics are kept and monitored by the FBI for every single demographic except for Native American or Indigenous women and girls. So we say that the film is based on literally thousands of stories, but even the U.S. government doesn't know exactly how many thousands of Native American women are missing and or murdered. So we also don't know how many stories there are out there that are similar to the stories of Natalie and Emily as portrayed in the film. But from anecdotal evidence and advocacy groups, we know that there are thousands of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. The problem of sexual assault, violence, and murder against Indigenous women is an epidemic. And not just in America. Canada might have the reputation for being the friendly, wholesome neighbours living above a crack den. The country's treatment of First Nations and other Indigenous people is fucking abominable, as is Australia's treatment of Aboriginal or Indigenous Australian people. And what all three countries have in common, along with the language and having been colonised by the English, because, yes, my people are the root of all evil in the world, is that, according to the internet, murder, sexual assault and missing persons and the associated human rights crises disproportionately affect Native American, uh, First Nations and Indigenous women and girls in the US and Canada. This does not mean that sexual violence, gender-based violence and domestic violence does not affect white women and girls. It is also at epidemic levels everywhere. What this means is that we have the privilege, just by the colour of our skin and the communities we were born into, that the authorities care about us more than they care about the sexual violence, gender-based violence and domestic violence, and racist violence against Indigenous women. They care even less about them than they care about white women. And these issues... Uh, statistically affect Indigenous women at incredibly disproportionate rates. And whilst we're on the subject, uh, we have done our best to use inclusive language, and from what we understand, the term Indigenous is generally preferred as like an umbrella term, and the most inclusive unless you're talking about a specific community. So some communities prefer different language, such as some prefer Native American or American Indian. There's also First Nations, Inuit, and Indigenous Canadian. And, you know, same with Aboriginal Australian or Indigenous Australian, although we're not really going to talk about Australia. But the, there are a lot of different terms, and we have done our best. So we are really sorry, genuinely, if we have got it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And also, like... To the best of our ability, if there is a specific, like, group or tribe or nation or whatever, we've tried to refer to them as such. While much of U.S. law enforcement and the Royal Canadian Mounted Police don't really care that much about these women or care about documenting when they go missing or when they're victims of violence or murder, there are a few statistics that we do have in regards to violence against Indigenous women and girls. So, in 2016, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau established the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, which examined the experiences of Indigenous Canadian women, girls, and two-spirit people. The inquiry found that violence is endemic against Indigenous women and girls in Canada, particularly those belonging to the First Nations, Inuit, and Met Metis uh, communities. 
and it has been described as a national crisis and a Canadian genocide. Although the Canadian government does not recognize it as such for obvious reasons. So the inquiry examined murders between 1980 and 2012, and in 2019 concluded that Indigenous women made up 4% of the Canadian population, but accounted for 16% of homicides during that period. We're not going to sit here and pretend that we read the entire report, because the executive summary alone is 121 pages, and I can only speak for myself, but I am not educated enough to understand it all, even if I did read it. Mm, No. (laughs) We haven't read it all. We have only picked the statistics and facts that they have kind of highlighted. Yeah, yeah. Um, There is a link to the report if you want to go and read it in the show notes. Uh, But that doesn't really matter so much because it seems that this inquiry and report is just like every other inquiry and report into racism, sexism, gender-based violence, homophobia, and anything that could in any way help level the playing field just that little bit for anyone who doesn't fit the male Yale and pale demographic. Pretty much every government in the English-speaking world, probably all over the world in general, conducts reviews and inquiries from time to time. They'll then publish a report which makes recommendations on how to deal with the problem, which all involve the government spending money on minorities, generally, and admitting that somewhere, somehow, they royally fucked up. Governments don't like doing that. The latest version of this in the UK is the report into institutional racism, which was conducted last year. This is like the latest line, latest in a long line of reports into racism going back more than 40 years. These recommendations from these race reports aren't ever followed through. That's a bit done here and there. And as a result, racism continues to fester in the UK. And then something happens, like the murder of Stephen Lawrence in the 90s that triggered another report. The statue of a slave trader getting thrown in a harbour last year, that triggered another inquiry at the cost of millions to a taxpayer, and nothing actually happens to deal with the problem. Yeah. All that's changed since that statue got thrown in a harbour is now, if you rape a woman, you get five years. If you deface a public statue, you get ten years. Yeah. That's the outcome of that report. Yeah, they protected the blocks of stone more than they're willing to protect like human life and yeah but that's it's ridiculous so these reports into missing and murdered indigenous women follow the exact same pattern as they do in any other country yeah Uh, Before the report published in 2019, there was a report published by the RCMP in 2014 entitled Missing and Murdered Aboriginal Women, uh, a National Operational Overview. This report found that 1,000 Indigenous women had been murdered in a 32-year time period, which also, like, what a round number. Very uh, convenient. Yeah. Um... But according to an article by the CBC, that figure is at least four times higher, and the activists have the names of 4,232 murdered and missing Indigenous women for that same time period of 1980 to 2012. Uh, Yeah, and that article, which I have linked in the uh, show notes as well, actually says they got to that point, they gave up counting. Yeah. Now, this higher figure also means that the murder rate of Indigenous women in Canada is four times that of their white counterparts. 
So the differences in numbers have been attributed in part to cases being closed far too quickly as uh, like suicide or uh, in like, as in the case in Wind River, exposure due to the cold, when in fact there are incredibly suspicious circumstances leading to these women's deaths. Uh, additionally, the RCMP have always underreported crimes involving involving indigenous women, which activists claim is down to institutional racism. So let's give you some examples of the awful treatment of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and their families in Canada. The province of British Columbia in southwestern Canada has been highlighted by uh, advocates and campaigners as being something of like a microcosm of the problems experienced by indigenous communities across Canada. So this is where all these examples come from. There's a 450 mile long section of Highway 16, which goes through northern British Columbia, nicknamed the Highway of Tears, which we believe to be in reference to the Trail of Tears in the US. Uh, More than 50 women have disappeared or been murdered along this stretch of highway since 1970. The majority of them are indigenous women and the majority remain unsolved. This area is rural, remote, filled with thick forests, logging outposts. According to a New York Times article, it's populated with impoverished indigenous communities. Public transport is virtually non-existent. Apart from the odd greyhound bus, which still doesn't serve the most remote of these communities, unemployment is high, people struggle to afford basic necessities, even food, so public transport is non-existent, a car is completely out of the question, hitchhiking is often the only way to get around. Despite there being more than 50 unsolved murders and missing persons cases, the uh, RCMP's task force created to investigate them, called EPANA, lists only 18 cases linked to the Highway of Tears, and of these 18, 8 are actually Caucasian women. So there's still about 50 indigenous women's cases that aren't being investigated as part of this task force. But again, these numbers are contested because, as previously said, the RCMP straight up refuses to acknowledge just how many indigenous women are being murdered, assaulted, kidnapped along these stretches of highway and instead claiming that these women just died because they were out in the cold at night yeah that same new york times article which is linked in the show notes quoted the minister for indigenous and northern affairs carolyn bennett as saying that families and survivors have complained of racism and sexism by the police who treated the deaths of indigenous women uh quote as inevitable as if their lives mattered less Uh, one of the examples the article gives is of 22-year-old Tamara Chipman, who disappeared in 2005 near Prince Rupert, which is at the eastern end of the Highway of Tears. Her aunt, who was interviewed for the article, claims that the RCMP objected to the family putting up missing posters and didn't help with the search. Uh, She then claimed that when a white woman went missing the next day in Vancouver, the police were on the streets immediately searching and putting up missing posters. She also claimed in another article that the media only began to take an interest in the Highway of Tears because of the 2002 disappearance of a 24-year-old white woman named Nicole Hoare. Uh, Nicole remains missing to this day, and she is one of the eight Caucasian women whose cases have been taken up by E. Panna. Tamara's aunt claimed that the media has given a disproportionate amount of coverage to Nicole's case compared to the cases of Tamara and other missing and murdered indigenous women. However, just to balance that argument out, journalists from 
British Columbia and Alberta have claimed that the families tend to turn the media away or don't want to pour their pain out into the pages of the local and national news, with one local reporter saying that if the families want coverage, they should seek out the media. So I have a lot of issues with this. Yeah. If you are a local reporter, a big part of your job is to cultivate relations with the communities and not fucking exploit them. Yeah. That is literally your job. If these communities don't want to talk to you, that is because you have not put the effort in. If these communities are saying, like, nobody is telling our stories, nobody is looking for our missing women, our missing girls, they're not hiding. Yeah. They want your attention. You have not put the effort in on your side. Yeah, especially, like, local news has to cover local news. Like, (laughs) Yeah, and saying oh, well, they don't want to talk to us. That's because you haven't put the effort in. Like, uh, there is one thing to say that, like, all these families don't want to have their stories exploited in the media, which is true. That doesn't mean that they don't want the stories told or highlighted or drawn attention to, especially in the case of some of these, like, unsolved cases. Yeah. And that's the big distinction to make. Yeah. And just like, I mean, that's a greater issue with national and international journalism Mm. anyway, which we do not have time to get into. But I think there's there's so much to be said for telling stories authentically and in a detailed manner and bringing awareness and representation to groups or issues that don't have those things um but yeah like in order to do that you have to write the stories first yeah uh it turns out that the canadian police's attitude to missing indigenous women is very similar to the uk police's attitude to missing working class women in the 70s and 80s which is highlighted very prominently in like cases like uh fred and rose west And that was that they've run away. They'll turn up when they feel like it. The problem is this was being extended to like 14 and 15 and 16 year olds who were very vulnerable. But that is the attitude. And it's just like, meh, they've run away. They'll turn up when they feel like it. And this is exactly what happened in June 1994 when 16 year old First Nations girl Ramona Wilson disappeared from Smithers, which is along the Highway of Tears. Her mother claims that the RCMP kept saying that Ramona would turn up again in a day or two. There wasn't any hurry. They didn't need to worry. Despite at that point, there was a 20-year history of women disappearing on this stretch of highway. Uh, Ramona's body was then found 10 months later in April 1995. And her case has been classified as a homicide, which just getting it classified is an achievement, but remains unsolved on a cold case pile yeah uh so when law enforcement refused to take missing persons cases seriously or to treat all missing women or marginalized people like their white middle-class counterparts it allows abusers to thrive go figure Mm. so in this case that we're about to talk about next that abuser was a serial killer who targeted vulnerable and marginalized women in british columbia from 1983 to 2002 now we do not have time to tell the entire story of robert picton but we will give you a quick rundown 
So Picton was born in 1949 in Port Coquitlam, uh, about 20 miles outside of Vancouver. We don't know, nor do we really care much about his childhood, but we do know that by the 1980s, he and his brother owned a pig farm in Port Coquitlam. Um, and by the mid-1990s, they had pretty much abandoned the farm and set up a nonprofit called the Piggy Palace Good Times Society. Now, I know yeah. on this podcast, we have had such diversions like the Church of the Fluffy Bunnies. Oh, yeah. Here for that. But like, that's a new one. Yeah. So, and it's a nonprofit, mind you. So, the Piggy Palace Good Times Society from what we can find, was supposed to hold fundraising events for charities, nonprofits, and other good causes, but actually kind of turned out they were holding raves, which were frequented by local chapters of the Hells Angels and sex workers from the now infamous downtown east side in Vancouver. Local law enforcement allegedly also turned up to party. I mean, wouldn't be shocked there. So Allegedly. Allegedly. For legal reasons. Allegedly. So the numbers vary, but Picton was convicted of six murders in 2007, uh, but he was accused of a further 21 murders. However, the Canadian Crown stayed those further 21 cases in 2010, and Picton remains behind bars for the six murders he was convicted of in 2007. He was sentenced to life in prison uh, with no possibility of parole for at least 25 years, by which time he will be 82. And at the time, that was the harshest sentence um, in Canada, 25 years without parole. Mm. Um, after being arrested... Picton bragged to his cellmate, who was actually an undercover officer, Oops. that he had killed 49 women with the aim of killing 50, but said he had got sloppy, which is understandable if it's been 20 years and no one has noticed you've killed more than 40 women. Yeah. Advocates for missing and murdered Indigenous women, women and girls and for sex workers all agree that the reason Picton was able to continue killing for so long was because law enforcement just did not give a fuck. Because these these victims were indigenous and are vulnerable women on the fringes of white society. Authorities did actually have a chance to stop Picton. This is in 1997, when he was arrested for the attempted murder of a sex worker in Vancouver. But that case was dismissed six months later, and no prizes for guessing why. The brothers were also pursued for zoning violations in 1998 in respect of their farm and the... Piggy, Palace, Hells Angels, Good Time shenanigans. But again, nothing ever came of that. Because it was zoned as a farm and they had turned it into a... Nightclub. Rave. <laughs> yeah. And nothing ever came of that and Picton remained free. However, Pic Picton's conviction did, in part, lead to the establishment of the Missing Women Commission of Inquiry in British Columbia in 2010. The commission was tasked with examining law enforcement's response to the reports of missing and murdered women in British Columbia, especially in Vancouver, where these levels of missing women from the downtown Eastside area, who nobody cared about because they were mostly sex workers and are drug users and are indigenous women, 
as well as their response to the Highway of Tears. The commission returned with 63 recommendations for British Columbian law enforcement and the provincial government, which included better public transport along the Highway of Tears and more resources and provisions for sex workers and substance users in Vancouver's downtown east side. We've placed Canada's treatment of Indigenous women front and center because I think a lot of the time, uh, Canada is kind of given a free pass and we kind of look the other way, a lot like how um, uh, racism is looked at in the UK because it's it's not as bad as the United States. You can't trip over it. The bar is that low and we need to stop using the US as a marker of whether you're doing okay. Yeah. If things aren't as bad as the US, that's great. But things are really bad in the U.S., so that doesn't mean they're not bad elsewhere. (laughs) Yeah. So, speaking of my homeland, um, we are now going to go south of that Canadian border and look at what is going on in the U.S. and how Indigenous people are treated there, and as well as the stories which led to uh, the inspiration for the film Wind River. So, as we said before, the FBI doesn't keep records for the number of missing and murdered uh, Native American women and girls, and much like their Canadian counterparts, and as demonstrated in Wind River, it is incredibly difficult for tribal police to get the FBI to actually investigate these cases. Now, that is because the manner of death is often exposure from being left in the middle of nowhere or trying to escape across the wilderness following an assault, much like we see in the film, with Natalie, her cause of death is ex- is exposure, so the FBI won't technically investigate it because it's not a homicide, but it can't be classified as a homicide and sexual assault without a federal investigation. You kind of see the issues with this. It's a catch-22 situation here. Also similar to Canada, according to the website Native Women's Wilderness, as of 2016, there have been 5,712 reported cases of missing Indigenous women and girls in the lower 48 states and Alaska, Uh, yet the U.S. Department of Justice has only 116 cases listed on its database. That's a big difference. Now, Another problem in the U.S. when it comes to investigating missing and murdered indigenous women is that the majority of sexual assaults and murders of indigenous women are committed on tribal land by non-indigenous people, which throws up yet another issue of jurisdiction. So as we understand it, and if you have a greater depth of knowledge, let us know. Um, tribal police struggle to investigate offenses committed by non-Indigenous peoples on Indigenous land. That responsibility mostly belongs to the FBI, who, as previously mentioned, aren't that keen on investigating what happens to Indigenous women and girls and the whole screwy system. Whilst the attitudes and lack of action from the FBI and the Department of Justice makes it difficult to ascertain exactly how many Indigenous women and girls are missing in the US. We have managed to find some numbers which demonstrate the scale of these crimes against Indigenous women. According to an Al Jazeera article from 2013, which is linked in the episode description, more than half of Indigenous women and girls will be raped in their lifetimes. 
which is the highest rate amongst female demographics in the US. Uh, One of the advocates who is interviewed talks about how Indigenous women have conversations with their daughters about what to do when they are raped. Not if, when they are raped. That is how common this is. She also says that many Indigenous women don't report sexual assaults because the cases aren't investigated and ultimately causes more problems for the families in the long run. And she she actually refers to it as hunting. Non-Indigenous men come onto the reservations, hunting down and raping Indigenous women and girls, sometimes murdering them as well, because there is little will of federal law enforcement to do anything to help these women. That same article goes on to say that according to the US Department of Justice, 86% of sexual assaults against Indigenous women and girls are committed by non-Indigenous men. That number could be higher because of the amount of cases which are unreported, flat out ignored by authorities. In fact, between 2005 and 2009, 67% of sexual assault cases against Indigenous women and children, which were, which these are the ones that actually got referred to the federal system, the courts rejected. Which is just appalling. It's, I mean, it just, it, it creates this toxic world. Well, not creates, but it helps foster this toxic environment. It enables. Yeah, it, it enables it. And it's, and like, how do you fix it if the system is broken? <laughs> like, you have to tear it down. And it's just, and nobody wants to do that. So, it's, yeah, that, that's the thing. These systems aren't broken. They were designed. Well, yes. They were designed flawed. broken. And that's that's what's so infuriating when you start looking at it. They were designed like this. Yeah. So there was a glimmer of hope in 2013 when the Obama administration reauthorized the Violence Against Women Act, which expanded the reach of tribal police so that they could investigate crimes committed by non-Indigenous peoples on tribal land. But they still have very limited sentencing powers uh, without going through the federal court system. So, but the federal court system throws back yes, exactly two thirds of cases. Yeah, so uh, <sighs> tribal police can only sentence three years. So you have the option: you might get a conviction on three years for sexual assault, yeah. or you risk getting the whole case thrown thro- out. Yeah, you risk it being thrown out by the federal court. But if it's one of the uh, 33% of cases that does go all the way, you've still not got a, uh, you've still not got a guarantee of conviction, but you might get a longer sentence. Yeah. How, how do you even make that decision? I honestly don't know. So as well as shamefully high levels of sexual assault, Indigenous women are murdered at record high rates as well. Indigenous women and girls are murdered at 10 times the rate of any other demographic, according to the Native Women's Wilderness. And murder is the third leading cause of death of Indigenous women and girls. And 84% of Indigenous women and girls have experienced violence in their lives. Again, much like in Canada, there have been numerous investigations, inquiries, recommendations, and sort of half-hearted uh 
actions taken to try and address the problem of violence against missing and murdered indigenous women and children. This includes the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act in 2013, although this expired during the Trump administration. And because, of course, Republicans hate pretty much everyone's rights, but especially women's rights, uh, it was temporarily reauthorized throughout Trump's presidency, but expired during the U.S. government shutdown. And uh, Senators Ted Cruz and Mitch McConnell were among prominent Republicans who blocked a vote on reauthorization. And it was finally reauthorized in Congress in March of this year. So 2021. Can you explain not just for our listeners but also for me what reauthorization means because that is not a thing i'm familiar with in british law i honestly couldn't tell you like my best guess would be um to reauthorize the funding for something uh because uh, because that makes it sound like this law is only applicable for x amount of years and then congress i think and well, it's Senate, either i think the house and senate have to vote to re reauthorize yeah, it i think it's either probably the funding for it or it may be a, a situation where guidelines are set out for something for x amount of time and okay. then you say we'll re-examine in 10 years or you know okay but so i can't say that's a thing that i have heard of particularly often either which is concerning <laughs> So bills have been introduced in a number of states, including Washington, Wisconsin, and Arizona, aimed at improving the reporting and investigating of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. But obviously, there is still a lot lacking on the federal level. This brings us to May 5th. Unless this is your first Square Mile Rodeo, in which case, welcome, make yourselves at home stay a while please <laughs> uh you'll know that we don't like to kind of brush past victims and kind of glaze over their stories this is we've never done an episode in this style before not not I don't for think. a main episode no yeah we've done a couple of patreon episodes that have been similar but we've never done a, a main episode in this kind of style because yeah. we like to sort of delve into these stories we like to examine Particularly on my part, the sort of socio and political settings which allow these kind of crimes to happen, and in cases like this, to keep on happening. Yeah. And I like the historical context of, uh, yeah, of things. So, so yeah, we are your neighborhood nerds. Um, yeah, we we don't like to make victims a footnote in their own stories. Yeah, and when we started this, um, you know, our main goal was to tell accurate stories that center victim or survivor narratives yeah but the reason we've done this episode a bit different is because in 2018 the u.s government declared may 5th the national day of awareness for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and this has also now been recognized by the canadian government as well um, in Canada, it includes Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit identifying people. It is described as a national day of awareness in order to raise concern and refocus attention on issues affecting Indigenous women, and it hopes to improve relations between the federal and tribal governments. So we weren't actually aware of this day 
until May 5th this year when friend of the pod Melissa who as well as just being a generally awesome person is soon to be Dr Melissa because she's currently finishing her PhD on homelessness and indigenous communities uh, posted about it on social media and so I had no idea and she was posting about um M- MMIW mm. which is the hashtag used for missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and because I was fresh out of hospital and able to do very little except read or watch tv I started reading about this kind of epidemic of violence against indigenous women and girls and it reminded me of Wind River which is a say excellent film if you haven't watched it yet go and do it <laughs> Um, and so that's what we decided to talk about this week, because obviously we reshuffled the program. Yeah. And it's May. Yeah. And hopefully in future episodes, we'll be able to examine some of these cases in much more detail. Yes. But kind of done this as more of just an overview. Um, so as well as designating May 5th as the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, in 2018, the Trump administration also announced the creation of the Task Force on Missing and Murdered American Indians and Alaska Natives, also known as Operation Lady Justice. I can only speak for myself, but I am fucking astounded. That this happened on Trump's watch. It is pretty surprising. Uh, but I also... I would like to call out the name. Operation Lady Justice. I was choosing to ignore that. <laughs> I can't stop because... looking at it. <laughs> yeah. Because boy, does that obscure the actual uh, remit of this task force. <laughs> Yeah. So, according to the Federal Register, Operation Lady Justice, uh, I just can't, um, seeks to, quote, enhance the operation of the criminal justice system and address the legitimate concerns of American Indian and Alaska Native communities regarding missing and murdered people, particularly missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. It is still ongoing, by the way. The Biden administration has recently updated it. Um, there's a whole load of press releases on the Federal Register about it. Yeah. So that is the story of the film Wind River um, and the thousands upon thousands of stories of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls who inspired it. What is there to say? Um, I hope you're all mad, because I'm really mad. Yeah. And when we figure out what to do about this being angry, we will tell you. Yeah. (laughs) Other than, like, donating to advocacy groups. Obviously, if you're in the US, contacting your local representatives to talk about these issues. Um, I don't really know what to do, or what to say. Yeah. It's just, a, you know, it's a symptom of the the sort of wider issues at hand in these countries. And, mm-hmm. I mean, until these things are addressed in government, in education, in social service, like all these various different branches, different avenues, it's not going to change. Yeah, and 
the big thing, obviously, is policy, but also education. Yeah. And elect people who well, yeah. will address these issues who who and it, and if they don't address them hold them to account yeah couple of things to mention so the thing that gets brought up in every missing persons case especially when there has been a serial killer on the loose and lots of people have gone missing police will always roll out the whole every adult has the right to voluntarily go missing this is true yeah you can just walk out of your life but when it is at these record levels that's that not, is what's, not what's happening. happening exactly um one thing i actually found whilst i was writing this script but i was watching videos on youtube native americans or indigenous americans whatever term you wish to use weren't considered citizens of the u.s until 1924. Yep. Less than a hundred years ago. Pretty appalling when you think about it. That I had no idea about either. Yeah. Which just, I mean, there is a whole lot in American history of the mistreatment of the original inhabitants of the North American landmass mm. and uh, so much of it gets, you know, swept under the rug, not taught in schools, n not if it is taught, not taught objectively. Yeah, that's the word. But yeah, we still have the people, the guy, the like one of the big guys who committed just horrendous atrocities and genocide against uh you know american indians or native americans andrew jackson on our fucking money it's ridiculous yeah going back to the film wind river before we both like just brains explode because like you said the film is incredible there are some criticisms crit criticisms of it which we are going to mention in that because we are good little film scholars <laughs> So it was written by a white man, directed by a white man. The two main leads, Jeremy Renner and Elizabeth Olsen, are obviously white. So that has led to some criticisms of it being, although it is very different to your classical westerns where the uh, Native Americans are seen generally as the other, the evil, the villains. And although this film does give a lot more agency and a lot more power, there are still criticisms that it was fronted by two big-name white Hollywood stars. Yeah. And, of course, the other criticism, again, is that it is still... Yes, it's it's centering these stories of, of Native American women, uh, indigenous women and girls, but it's still showing them being violently assaulted and killed. Yeah. I, you know, I was thinking about it sort of after watching the film and as we've been recording this, just like, even if you flipped the dynamic of the marriage in the, the main marriage in the film. So if Corey was native American and his yes. wife was white or non-indigenous, then that could have helped tremendously. 
Like, yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't always have to be all or nothing. Like, yes, it would be ideal for native or indigenous stories to be told by indigenous writers and a, a fully indigenous cast or or whatever it may be. But these smaller changes can be implemented to get to there. Like, yeah. Jeremy Renner didn't need to be the lead actor in that movie. It could have been an indigenous actor. It could have been, you know, an American Indian actor. Mm-hmm. And it would have been just as compelling, perhaps even more so. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, that's not, you know, quote unquote, critically, or sorry, commercially, you know, as yeah. sellable. And I mean, that's. Yeah. And I think that would, especially that closing scene where you have the two fathers. Yeah. For that to be two indigenous men would have made, would have been so different. Yeah. And I, I, I think Jeremy Renner is, is great in this role. He is. He's fantastic. But as you say, like, I never thought that if you, if you flipped the, the marriage. Yeah. Like, um, that, that would have made so much difference. And I think it also, you know, or you, you know, you make him a member of the tribal police and then they investigate it together. Like, yeah, it's just like these minor things that like you can still have the indigenous characters explaining, for lack of a better term, like the way things work to the white FBI agent who has no idea what's going on. But there can be, you know, greater levels of representation and complexity. Yeah. And I think this kind of speaks to a change in attitude over the last few years, because it's always been, if you are like a white person in a position of privilege, has always been speak for those who don't have a voice. Yeah. And now it's like, no, pass the microphone. Yeah. And like, it- it's tough because films like this, obviously, and when they're backed by large production companies or big money or whatever, it creates opportunity. But yeah. cr- create the opportunity and then listen to to the people that you're creating the opportunity, supposedly creating it for. Yeah. Like, it, it cannot be a, a white savior situation. It cannot be... <laughs> a like these stories of other cultures whatever they may be told Mm -hmm. through an outsider lens like that's personally i think we should be done with that yeah um another thing about the film so it's came out in 2017 it was originally uh the distribution rights were originally acquired by the weinstein company womp womp so, um, one thing I have a massive respect to uh, the uh, director, Taylor Sheridan, was that he did not let that happen. Yeah. So, the Weinstein Company acquired the distribution rights at the Cannes Film Festival in 2017, and it then premiered at the festival in 2017. Where it actually won, um, uncertain regard for best director. Hmm. The uh, scandal. Why are we still calling it a scandal? 
the sexual abuse per- perpetrated by Harvey Weinstein yeah. finally became public that year. And I am not letting the Weinstein company off the record we cut off the with this because they had it in his contract. If he sexually abused a woman, they would fine him. They would make it go away, but he would pay a fine. So the board of the Weinstein company knew what he was doing for years and they profited from it. Yeah. So once um, Taylor Sheridan found out about this, he went to great lengths to make sure that the Weinstein company did not get to distribute it and it was eventually distributed by Lionsgate instead. Um, Their logo, their name, everything was omitted from the credits, the trailer, promotional, everything. And the any money that had been made by the Weinstein company, any money that had been paid to Harvey Weinstein was ordered to be donated to charities. No, which is... Especially just like the <laughs> the subject matter of the film, and you know yeah. the the juxtaposition to mm. Harvey Weinstein and his horrific crimes. Like it's, I, I think that's very admirable that Sheridan yeah pushed for that so hard. Yeah, we do definitely recommend that you watch the film and you know we will post a whole bunch of links in the show notes and on our website for uh anyone interested to go in and peruse and and learn more about this stuff and like we said um we do plan on covering some of these cases in greater depth in, in future episodes but we thought this was a a good foundation to start from. Um, yeah. So hopefully we did an okay job at explaining this stuff and, you know, as always let us know, um, if you have a a greater insight than we do, which is probably a lot of people, but, um, yeah, like we, we always want to hear from you and, and hear your feedback. So that's us for this week. Uh, If you like the show, be sure to rate and review us on your podcast app, especially Apple Podcasts, and subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Those those few things really help us, you know, grow the show, and we greatly appreciate uh, when you do them. And if you want to get some cool square mile of murder merch, we have a selection of awesome products with cool designs and you can find those at the link in our show notes or on our website if you'd like to help us cover the costs of making the podcast and help us invest in the future of the show you can join our patreon page tiers start from just one pound per month every patron gets regular episodes a day early a shout out on the show priority case requests and a lifetime merch discount and that's just for one pound a month as the tiers go up you get even more including bonus episodes and exclusive money can't buy merch check that out at patreon.com slash square mile of murder links are in all the usual places yeah uh so uh, thank you guys so much and we will be back next week with an introduction to cults month yes yeah so look forward to that yeah thanks for listening thanks Bye. bye